turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I don't know if you grew up with uh, older siblings. I, I did. I have an older brother and an older sister. I also have a younger brother. And, you know, when I was a, when I was a kid, my, my older brother's eight years older than me, by the way. And so he was always bigger than me. He was always stronger than me. And, well, when I was a kid, he always enjoyed proving that to me. And so, you know, I, I was kind of hard-headed, so there were some times where I, I thought, you know, this, was, this is a good time for me to test him, you know, to kind of see where I stand and see if finally I can take him. So maybe we'd be in the den together and he'd be laying on the floor or sitting on the floor watching TV and I would get up on the coffee table and come off with an atomic elbow right on his back and, well, I mean, he, he would grab me and he would throw me around and he would headlock me and he would do all this kind of stuff to me. It, it, his signature move, though, was the scissors. Art always had big, strong, powerful legs. And he would take my little body and he would squeeze his legs right around my stomach and he would lock his ankles and he would squeeze as hard as he could and would just absolutely take all the breath out of me until I finally would just tap out and just, with whatever breath I had in my lungs, beg for mercy. And my sister was six years older than me, and, well, she beat me up all the time, too. But a little bit different, her signature move was to, you know, instigate something and then go run behind Daddy. And it just never could win that one, you know? And so what I would do was kind of the same, I guess, that every middle child does, and that is, well, I'd turn around and beat up my younger brother, you know, just to kind of make me feel better about things. So, you know, I would take my shots with him and always had the upper hand on him. Funny thing though, I went off to college and my younger brother started wrestling. We didn't have wrestling at our high school uh, most of the years that I was there. It kind of started it later on and he got into it. First year he wrestled, didn't win a single match. I mean, he couldn't win a forfeit. He couldn't beat anybody. But he started working at it, started lifting weights. I mean, spent a lot of time in the gym. The very next year, he was the Alabama high school state heavyweight wrestling champion. Well, you know where this is going. I come home from college, walk in the front door, had no sooner than set my luggage down. He picks me up, he throws me up against the staircase, puts me in what now is his signature move called the angel, inappropriately titled, by the way. <laughs> And the next thing I know, he is twisting and he is tying and he is pulling like a clown with making balloon animals. I mean, he was wearing me out. What he did to me, I know, was illegal in Vermont and Massachusetts, but <laughs> we lived in Alabama. Nothing's illegal there. And so he was just beating me to death. And finally, as I'm just screaming mercy, yelling out in pain, he jumps off jumps up off of me and looks at me and goes, you want any more? You know, and so just never, I mean, just never had a chance. But that's what brothers do, right? I mean, that's, that's family. That's what you remember even growing up. And, of course, you know, my brothers and sister and I are all best friends. Of course, Art and I are still scared of Charlie. He's still huge. But, you know, we, we never would do that to each other now. And even when we were younger and even when we used to, well, when they used to beat me up, we always wanted what was best for each other. Well, I'm excited that today we're going to begin a brand new series, really kind of a character study on the life of Peter, entitled Peter, A Life Restored. And today as we look at John chapter 1, we're going to see the beginning of that restoration for Peter and really the most influential person in his life as he comes to Jesus and begins this restoration process of all people 
was his brother. So let's look together at John chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 35. John writes, again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Now let's stop there. First of all, in verse 35, that reference to John is not speaking of the author of this gospel. This is a reference to John the Baptist. So what we see here in these first two verses is that John the Baptist is doing what he was always destined to do. Remember, we studied a little bit about John the Baptist, primarily about his mom and dad, Zacharias and Elizabeth, back in our December series. And how God had appointed John the Baptist to point people to Jesus. That was his task. That was his destiny in life. One thing that's really interesting is that at this point in time, John had an incredible following himself, but he never lost his place in the plan of God. He continued to point people to Jesus. And then in verse 36, when we see this reference of Jesus being the Lamb of God, I want to explain that to you as well. In the Old Testament, animals, oftentimes lambs, were brought by people to the temple as a sacrifice to atone for their sins. Every single time a person sinned, an animal had to be killed and offered as a sacrifice to God. So as John the Baptist is looking at Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, he is making the point that this is God's once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of all people. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But there's also a Messianic reference here. The Old Testament prophets foretold about how God would send a Messiah who would deliver his people. Oftentimes, this Messiah was portrayed as one who would go through some difficult times. Isaiah was one who really portrayed him that way. And in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, as Isaiah is talking about this coming Messiah, he says about him, He was led as a lamb to be slaughtered. And as a sheep is silent before its hearers, so he opened not his mouth. So as John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God, he's speaking of what Jesus would do for us, how he would be the sacrifice for our sins, but he is also pointing to the truth that that is the Messiah that God has sent. Now, as we think again about that sacrifice for our sins, you know, it's been really convicting to me lately that so often you and I, boy, we have a tendency to accept the forgiveness of God just freely and quickly with no thought at all about the consequence of our sins. We are forgiven because Jesus gave his life. When the Bible says the wages of sin is death, cannot escape that verse. Jesus took that death so that you and I can be free. He is the Lamb of God. Now, let's move forward though in verse 37. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated, teacher, where are you staying? 
Now, a couple of things I want to point out to you. One is, as we continue to go through these verses, you're going to see some parentheses. And the reason you see that is because John wants his Greek hearers to be able to understand these Hebrew or Aramaic terms. So he's making sure they understand exactly what he's saying and what these words mean. But what we see here is that two of uh, John the Baptist's disciples, as John points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God, they are incredibly intrigued. So following John's lead, they begin to follow him. And as Jesus notices that, and he turns around and asks them what they're doing, they ask to know where he's staying. Now, they're not asking for a geographical location as much as, in a sense, what they're asking is, Can we come and visit with you for a while? Okay? And then look at what happens in verse 39. So Jesus said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. So Jesus, again, with his response is not saying, sure, you can come find out where I'm physically staying. He is accepting their invitation, essentially. And he's saying, listen, yes, you can come and you can sit with me and spend time with me. Now, when it says that it's about the 10th hour, what that means is it's about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. But also, with the reckoning of day, it, it implies that not only did they spend the evening with Jesus, but they spent the night where he was staying. So think about that with me for a moment. These two disciples, having been pointed to Jesus by John the Baptist, they go and they spend unhurried time listening to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They are sitting in the presence of the one who made the heavens and the earth, the one who even made them and had a plan for their lives. Can you imagine the questions that they would have asked? Can you imagine how they would have been looking for pen and paper and wanted to write down every single thing that Jesus had to say? These two disciples had the distinct privilege of spending unhurried time in the presence of Jesus. And look at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, I want you to know that John is writing this gospel about 50 years after this event had taken place. And so the people who are hearing this for the first time, they know who Simon Peter is. But in the next couple of verses, John is going to give us a little bit more knowledge about how Simon Peter came to be Simon Peter because he was originally only known as Simon. So look at what he says. It says in verse 41, He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Simon, I'm sorry, when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, or the son of John is how that would be translated. You should be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. So after Andrew spends this unhurried time in the presence of Jesus, when he wakes up the next morning, the first thing he wants to do is to go get his brother Simon and bring Simon to Jesus as well. So as Simon accepts Andrew's invitation and he comes into the presence of Jesus, the scripture says that Jesus looked at him. Now you need to understand that in the Greek, this word look means more than just a glance. It means to gaze. I imagine that Peter felt like Jesus looked at him for hours. I imagine that he felt like Jesus was looking right through the back of his head, all the way through him. Can't you imagine how uncomfortable that must have been? 
But then Jesus begins to speak. He says, Simon, son of John. He knows exactly who he is. And he knows everything about him. Now, this is a good time for us to stop and let's do a little bit of biography on Simon Peter as he's going to be the subject of the next several weeks. What we know about Simon's life before this point is, is really fairly limited. We know that he had a brother named Andrew. We know that he had a father named John. We also know that he was married. Simon was a fisherman, shared a fishing business with his brother Andrew. They lived on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, which was a fishing community, so it was a great place for them to be. But probably the most important thing you need to know about Simon at this point in his life is this guy now. You talk about rough around the edges. This guy was incredibly impulsive. My favorite description of Simon at this point in his life comes from John MacArthur in his great book entitled 12 Ordinary Men when he says that Simon had a tendency to rev up his mouth while his brain was still in neutral. That's really, really good. But what I want you to know here in this verse is that Jesus knows all that about him. He knows where he comes from. He knows what he's doing. And he knows exactly what his character is like. But after Jesus looks at him intently and calls him by name, he says, from now on, you will be called Cephas. And you say, I thought he was going to be called Peter. Cephas is the Aramaic name. Peter is the Greek. It's all the same. But as John tells us, the name means a stone or a rock. Peter is nowhere near that in his life at this point. Nobody would ever say, that guy is a rock. That guy is an anchor. Oh, absolutely not. Incredibly impulsive, real quick with his tongue. I mean, just a flighty kind of a guy. But Jesus sees in him what he's destined him to be. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to watch this restoration process happen in Peter's life as Jesus makes him into that rock. But I want to make about four points for you before we wrap up today, okay? Here's the first thing that I want you to see from this passage. I want you to see that every Christian has a spiritual legacy. Every Christian has a spiritual legacy. Think about Peter's spiritual legacy. Who pointed him to Jesus? Andrew. But let's go further. Who pointed Andrew to Jesus? John the Baptist. Who pointed John the Baptist to Jesus? His parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth. So listen, if you're a believer here in this room this morning, there is somebody in your life that God used to point you to Jesus. It may have been a parent. It may have even been a brother who beat you up all your life. It may have been a youth leader. It may have been a Sunday school teacher. It may have been a fraternity brother. But there's somebody in your life who pointed you to Jesus. That's just true for everybody. 
And I want you also to think about this. How incredible that is, right? To see how when God did an incredible work in that person's life, He was already thinking about you. Think with me about this. Maybe you remember that first Sunday in December where we studied how God sent the angel Gabriel into the temple to appear before Zacharias, who he and his wife Elizabeth had never been able to have any children, but with a message that they were going to have a child. When God appeared before Zacharias in the temple, he could already see the legacy that would be passed down to Simon Peter. How wonderful is our God. Second thing that I want you to see is that every Christian should leave a spiritual legacy. Can you imagine if Zacharias and Elizabeth would not have pointed their son to Jesus? Can you imagine what if John the Baptist would have never pointed Andrew to Jesus? Oh my goodness, can you imagine what would have happened if Andrew would not have pointed Peter to Jesus. Every Christian should leave a spiritual legacy. Listen, that's what the Great Commission is about, right? Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. All of us are called to leave a spiritual legacy. Listen, if that one's not enough for you, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that as believers, we're no longer to live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again. So the moment when we trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, life is no longer about what we can get. Life is about what we can give. And all of us are called to leave a spiritual legacy. Are you leaving a spiritual legacy with your children? Listen, we, we want to do what's right for our kids, right? That's why we work so hard. We want them to have a better life than we had. And so we work for them. We, we work hard hoping to bless them. And so we want to leave them a legacy of a great education. And we want to leave them a legacy of what well, great character development. And we want to leave them a, a legacy of love and comfort and a great understanding of family. We want to leave them a legacy of a good name. So we work hard even on our own character. But you know what? All of those things, as great as they are, they're temporary, aren't they? They're temporary. We need to be living a, leaving a spiritual legacy to our children. Are you pointing your kids and your grandkids to Jesus? As a business person, are you leaving a spiritual legacy with your employees? Are you leaving a spiritual legacy with those who work in your office? Are you leaving a spiritual legacy with your patients? You may say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not really that guy, you know? I'm kind of more of a behind-the-scenes guy. Listen, there's nothing wrong with that. We could actually call Andrew kind of a behind-the-scenes guy. You know, for me, our, our family's a big basketball family, so for me, Andrew's kind of like the point guard, you know? He's the distributor. There's not a whole lot we know about Andrew in the New Testament. You see his name several times, but 
At the end of the day, when you look back and you characterize Andrew's life, there are three main things that Andrew did. He brought his brother to Jesus. He brought the little boy with the loaves and fishes to Jesus. And then in John chapter 12, which you may not remember, when Jesus came to Jerusalem and the disciples were there, there were a group of Greeks who came to a couple of the disciples and said, we want to see Jesus, and Andrew brought them to Jesus. He was the point guard. He's the distributor. Peter, right, at this point in his life, Peter's incredibly raw talent. But Peter will become an all-star. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's going to stand up and he's going to preach the gospel with incredible Holy Spirit power. And 3,000 people are going to be saved in a single day. Now, Peter's personality was incredibly different than Andrew's. But both of them left a spiritual legacy. So don't give me this, well, I'm just not a people person or I'm just not an upfront kind of a guy. I'm not a preacher. I'm not a missionary. If you're a believer, you are called to leave a spiritual legacy wherever you are. And let me also caution you as parents, because as parents, sometimes we hold on to leaving a spiritual legacy to our kids. And listen, that is first and foremost and incredibly important. But sometimes we kind of cocoon ourselves and we think that's all we're supposed to do. Let me remind you again, the Great Commission. Go ye into all the what? World. God has called every single Christian to leave a spiritual legacy that extends beyond your home. It's to have a passion to see people all over the world pointed to Jesus. All right, let me give you the third thing. The third thing I want you to see from the passage is that the key to leaving a spiritual legacy is spending unhurried time with God. That's what Andrew did, didn't he? You notice? He spends the evening, late into the night, spends the night. He spends all that time with Jesus. And the first thing he wants to do when he gets up in the morning is he wants to bring his brother to Jesus. Listen to me. We're beginning a new year. I'm sure you've made lots of resolutions. Maybe one of those resolutions is to live out your faith better. Is that not a resolution you make almost every single year? And at the end of the year, you go, I'm terrible at it, right? It's the one thing you know you're supposed to do, but you feel awful at it. Even when it comes to leaving a spiritual legacy to your children. You hear me talk about that a few moments ago and you go, yeah, absolutely, man, that's right. That is so right. That is so right. And I'm I'm, going to start doing that. But then probably at the end of the year, you're going to, I'm terrible. I'm horrible at it. What's the problem? What's the problem? Let me tell you what the problem is. The problem is, is that we don't spend enough unhurried time in the presence of God. In my quiet time this past week, I'm doing a study of Psalms, and I was in Psalm 105. And look at how Psalm 105 begins. This is a Psalm of David. He cries out, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing psalms to Him. Talk of all His wondrous works. And as I began to meditate on those two verses this past week, it just struck me how just comfortable it was for David to 
talk about the works of God, to proclaim his name among the people. And how David is pleading with us to do the very same thing as if it's the most natural thing in the world. Yet for me and probably for you, it seems to be the most unnatural thing in the world. But if you continue reading Psalm 105, David is talking about all the incredible things that God has done throughout history. And so as David begins the Psalm in 105, he begins armed with all of this incredible information about God and His faithfulness. And he is so overwhelmed with how good God is and all that He's done. He wants people to know about Him. And he wants us to point people to Him as well. All the time I'll have folks send me an email or call me and say, Man, I need to do, man, I need to do so much better. I need to do better with my kids. Can you recommend a devotion that we can do as a family? Because I'm, I just can't do it unless I have a devotion. Let me tell you something, all right? There's nothing wrong with a family devotion. But you, you really don't need to go buy a book. You really don't. We see from Andrew's life, and you see from that scripture David proclaimed. If you spend unhurried time in the presence of God, it will be natural for you. That family devotion book that you're trying to find, that's the reason that you're not leaving a spiritual legacy to your children, that's nothing more than a crutch, if I can just be honest with you. If you remember, Psalm 1 begins by telling us that the firmly planted man is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And in the law of God, he meditates day and night. Remember what it says next? He will be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, its leaf doesn't wither, and whatever he does, it prospers. You know what he's saying? You spend unhurried time in the presence of God, meditating on his word, and fruitfulness is going to come. You don't have to go to Lifeway and buy something to make that happen. You just need to carve out that time, okay? And then the fourth thing that I want you to see this morning, I want you to see that God sees in you who He's always destined you to be. That's what we see with Peter, right? I mean, as he looks at Peter, he looks right through him. And he looks years down the road into what Peter will be. Peter is far from a rock. But God's going to make him one. You know, another thing that we neglect about God is we neglect the role and the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that when you trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, when you recognize He's the Lamb of God and you count on Him for forgiveness of sins, do you remember that the Scripture tells us at that moment when we trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us? And do you remember the role of the Holy Spirit? The role of the Holy Spirit is to teach you the things of God in order to shape you into who God has always destined you to be. And the Holy Spirit's real good at it. In fact, he's got a perfect record. 
Paul says in Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Well, what exactly does that look like? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, for he says, Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Okay? How does he conform us into the image of Jesus? Through the Holy Spirit who lives within us. So when we come and see Jesus for ourselves and we spend unhurried time in his presence, meditating on his word and confessing our sin, then God begins a restoration process in us and he makes us into who he is always destined us to be. So listen, as we wrap up this morning, I'm going to ask you this question. How has God been doing that today? How has God been speaking to you through His Word? Have you ever trusted in Him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Is He this morning inviting you to have your sins forgiven and to receive that new life in Christ? Is He inviting you into His family? And are you willing today to say yes? What's, been God, what's God been saying to you about your spiritual legacy if you're a believer. Did God bring to mind a person's name? A parent, a friend, a youth leader? Did God bring to your mind somebody who pointed you to Jesus? What do you think God wants you to do with that? Because He gave you that name for a reason. I think for one is God wants you to thank Him for sending that person in your life. But I think for two... Don't you think God would want you to, I don't know, maybe go home this afternoon and pick up the phone? Or maybe send a text? Or maybe write a letter and just say to that person, thank you for pointing me to Jesus. I wouldn't be where I am today if it weren't for you. Has God been telling you that you need to think more about leaving a spiritual legacy? Has God been saying to you that, listen, what you leave for your kids, it, it needs to be more than money and needs to be more than a business and needs to be more than a good name because all of those things are temporary and none of those things will bring your child into heaven. Has God been telling you that you needed to leave a spiritual legacy at work? Has God been telling you that you need to see your employees more as people who are helping you accomplish your mission, but seeing your employees as the mission God has given you? Has God been telling you that's something you need to do better at this year? Has God been telling you that you need to slow down and spend some unhurried time in His presence? Listen, at the end of the day, life's all about choices, isn't it? Every one of us can make excuses about why we can't spend unhurried time in the presence of God. But they're all excuses. We choose what time we go to bed. We choose what time we wake up. We choose what we do in those morning hours. What do our choices say about how we value spending time in God's presence? Or has God been telling you this morning, there's more to you than you see when you look in the mirror? 
story's been told about the man who walked up to Michelangelo, the great Michelangelo, as he was chipping away with his chisel at this huge, shapeless rock. And as the man draws near, he looks at Michelangelo and he observes what he's doing and he says to him, what in the world are you doing? To which Michelangelo replied, I am releasing the angel that is imprisoned in this marble. Over the next several weeks, we are going to watch how Jesus releases the rock that is imprisoned in that impulsive old flesh of Simon Peter's. And you need to know, God has a perfect plan for your life. And He knows what that is, and He sees who you can be. But it is up to you to come and to see and let the restoration process begin in you. Pray with me. Fathers, we bow before you this morning. We thank you so much for your word, which is just absolutely priceless. Even this morning, with the 20, 25 minutes we've had together looking at your scripture, you've given us a little bit of unhurried time in your presence and oh, what a difference it makes and how it really helps us to think about the truth about life. Father, you have revealed to us your sovereignty, You've revealed to us your providence. You've revealed to us your grace through the Lamb of God. You've revealed to us how you have a plan for us and how you can restore us if we just give you a chance. Father, with all the different people who are here in this room, there's no way for me to know how you speaking specifically to each individual, but Lord, I pray. I pray that as you've been speaking and as I believe you're speaking even now, God, I pray that you'll help each of us in this room to open the door and allow you in, to allow you to have your way in us, to save us to transform us, to make us into who you've always destined us to be. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.